you to take your scriptures and turn back to Isaiah 66. And while you're doing that, just a reminder, we have a great service in store for you tonight at 6 o'clock. Pastor Jim and a host of helpers of our students and teachers from Faith Christian School uh, will be doing our service tonight. They'll be bringing the worship and the music. We have a great uh, passage tonight and a great message from God's Word planned and just a great time at 6 o'clock. We hope you can join us and encourage our, our children and our students here from Faith Christian School tonight as well. A.W. Tozer wrote this. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. For this reason, he writes, the gravest question before the church is always God himself. And the most portentous fact about any man is not what he at any given time may say or do, but what he in his deep heart conceives God to be like. Professor Robert Wilson was professor of Old Testament at Princeton University back in the 1900s, from 1900 to 1929. And he once said this, he said, some men have a little God and they're always in trouble with him because he can't do any miracles and he doesn't intervene on the behalf of his people. They have a little God and so I call them little godders. He says, then there are those who have a great God and to him... He speaks and it is done. He commands and it stands fast. He knows how to show himself strong on the behalf of those who fear them. Fear him. They are big godders. See, that's the question of Isaiah 66. How big is your God? In your deepest heart, in your deepest heart, what do you this morning conceive God to be like? The psalmist said this, you thought that I was one like unto you. And a lot of people today, their conception of God in their heart, is that he's just like one of us, except maybe a little bit bigger and a little bit stronger. See, we're little godders, I think, sometimes, instead of big godders. In fact, that's what David Wells perceives as he looks over the landscape of the churches in the 21st century, as he writes in his book, God in the Wasteland, I quote, it is one of the defining marks of our time that God is now weightless. I do not mean by that, he writes, that he is ethereal, which means he literally is physically weightless, but rather he has become unimportant. He is rests so inconsequentially upon the world as to not have any importance. And here's what he says that proves it. God is less interesting than television. His commands are less authoritative than our appetites for affluence and influence. His judgments are no more awe-inspiring than the advertisements and the sweet fog of flattery and lies that we hear on television. This is weightlessness. He goes on to say that God has become, even for Christians, like a child that has been abandoned within his own family, that he has a place in the house, but no place in their home. We've become a nation of little godders. Isaiah is a book 
about Israel and how they have returned from exile after their idolatry and disobedience to God. That's what the content of the first half in chapters 1 through 39 is all about. The second half is a book about hope. It's a book about how God will someday completely and utterly bring restore Israel back to its former glory. And so in light of that, Israel has returned and they are building or rebuilt their temple. They have reenacted the sacrificial system. But God still, despite all of those things at this time in Isaiah, as he writes, they have, he has become weightless to them. He has become some sort of manageable deity. As Wilson would say, he has, they have become little godders. Donald McCullough says that they have replaced reverence and awe of God with a yawn of familiarity. The all-consuming fire of God has been domesticated into a candled flame for just a little bit of atmosphere. See, they have no heart for him. He is no longer a blinding light, and his power for purification is no longer evident. And Donald McCullough goes on to say that the worst sin of the church in the 21st century so far has been the trivialization of God. We have become little godders. But here's the funny thing. If you read the book of Isaiah starting in chapter 1 and read all the way through up to our part of it, you'll find that they didn't stop going to church They still attended services. They still went to the temple. They still offered externally all of the sacrifice that was required by Torah. And they acted at, when they went to the temple, they acted as if God was big. He was huge. But every day in their lives, they acted as if he was small, inconsequential, and weightless. I don't know if you've ever been in the presence of greatness I did, I've said this before, I was on vacation when I was about 12 or 13 in Acapulco with my family, and I went into the pharmacy, and I was an avid basketball fan, and there at the counter getting a candy bar was Dr. J. I couldn't believe it. I, I watched Dr. J and his crazy dunks and all that he could do. I mean, I, was, I walked in there and I couldn't believe it. I had to look a couple times. In fact, I got to get, had to get real close and kind of go like this to him, which he thought was, I'm sure, very strange. And so I'm looking at him, and, and he knows I'm looking at him. And he finishes checking out, and he looks at me, and he says, hi. And I go. <laughs> now, later on, believe me, when I tell the story, I said, hey, I had a conversation with Dr. J. I didn't have a conversation. He said, hi, and I said, nothing. Because it, it affects you strangely, doesn't it, when you're in the presence of greatness? See, if that's true of just a simple basketball player, what would be true if you were in the presence of greatness, true greatness? What if you were in the presence of the greatness of the infinite God who made the heavens and earth? And isn't that how Isaiah starts? Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne, earth is my footstool. And then he goes on in verse 2 at the beginning, all these things my hand has made. All of them have come to be basically because I have said so. See, it doesn't take much, does it, to know that we should be big godders. All we have to do is look in the sky at night and look up at the stars and know how awesome and great God is. I read some interesting facts this week that when you look up on a clear night, okay, not in New Jersey, but if you were somewhere else (laughs) and you looked up and there was a clear night, 
you would think that you were viewing millions and millions of stars. But the truth is, astronomers say that on a given night, a clear night, you can only see about 9,096 stars. Now, it seems a lot more than that. But that number, 9,096, is nothing compared to what you could see if you could see more. You can only see a little with the naked eye, but there's so much more. How much more? They now say, though it's, the number is constantly expanding, that there are three septillion stars. Now that is a three with 24 zeros after it. And that's all that we know at this point. Let me try to relate so you can understand how big that number is. If you translate it not into stars, but into seconds, all right? If you had one million seconds ago, it would be 11 days ago. Does anyone remember what they were doing 11 days ago? I know I don't. What about one billion seconds ago? If it was one billion seconds ago, it would be 31 years and eight months ago. I definitely don't remember that. I do remember that 31 years ago in 1990, CD players came out for the first time and The Return of the Jedi was debuting in movie theaters. What about one trillion seconds ago? That would be 32,000 years ago, if there is such a thing. Three septillion, it's beyond our comprehension. It's impossible to fathom it. And yet, listen to this, Isaiah 40 and verse 26 says, and God knows all the stars by name, by name. A trillion atomic bombs. Can you imagine a trillion? That is the force of some of the stars, in fact, a lot of the stars that are outside of our galaxy and outside into the universe. There are a number of stars that put out, listen to this, a trillion atomic bombs, the amount of energy in a trillion, trillion atomic bombs every second. Can you imagine that? There are stars like Eta Carinae in our Milky Way galaxy that are five million times brighter than our sun. Five million times brighter. See, he's bigger than big. See, he's bigger than all the words that we have to describe and use for big. He's not just huge. He's not just gigantic, humongous, gargantuan. See, they're, they're just not big enough, are they? See, he is an infinite God, and we should be infinite godders. We really should. So much so that here's what Isaiah says with these two little what is statements. You see it? He tells you that heaven is his throne and earth is his footstool. In other words, all these mammoth things that we can't get our minds around, there's nothing to him. And he says this, to what, what, watch, what is the house that you would build for me and what is the place of my rest? You know what he's saying? He's saying, take a look out in the universe and you can see a little bit of what my hand can do. If this is what my hand can do, what in the world would your hand be able to do? How could you ever make a place for me that I could dwell, I could have a resting place that I would feel at home with, that would be sufficient enough and big enough for me? See, by that, listen, God is not saying that he didn't want them to build the temple. 
Solomon in 1 Kings 8 says, in verse 27, when he was building what God told him to do, he says, but will God indeed dwell on earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much, how less this house that I have built. He goes, I know, God, that you're building this temple, but I know this temple is way, way too small to contain an infinite God like you. So what does he want then? If he has us build a temple, but that's not where he wants to dwell. If he has this temple, and it's really not big enough for him because he's so infinitely large, what does he want? It's like Christmas. Have you ever, you know, you grow older, and my parents were older. What do you get someone who's 75 or 80 and has everything? I'm going to get you this. Oh, don't get me that. I have that. I'm going to get you, no, I I really don't, I'm not interested in that. What do you get someone who has everything? Well, you know what my parents used to say? Well, just come and see us, right? Just come and spend some time. You know what people who have everything want? The same thing that God wants from you. You know what he wants? You know what they want? You. See, that's what he really wants. Israel thought that God wanted someone who would go to the temple do all the sacrifices, do all the right things, go through the motions, follow the rituals, and do all the external things. And by the way, Israel had it down to a science. They were good at it. We'd say today, 21st century vernacular, hey, they were good at going to church. They were good at filling the pew. They brought their Bible. They sang in the choir. They did some ministry activities, and they put some money in the offering plate. See, they thought that that's what God was looking for. I mean, I tell you today, based on this passage, that the measure of Faith Baptist Church is not gauged on how big our buildings are or how big our budgets are, but how big our God is. See, that's the test of who we really are. And the kind of person that they thought God was looking for was one that one God was not impressed at all. And that's why, look at your text. The Bible says in verse 2, you see the word but? See, I'm so big, and you built this temple, and it's never enough for me, and I'm not looking for you. I'm not, I'm not looking to dwell in a temple. I'm not looking for you to worship me just in a building and think that this is all there is. He says, but in contrast to that, verse 2, see it? But to this one will I look. I'm not looking for the religious person. I'm not looking for someone who just does the routine and goes through the motions and does the religious thing and shows up and I put my time in and I go back home and my life isn't any different. He says, that's not who I'm looking for. That's not true worship. That's what got you exiled in the first place. He says, but let, let me tell you, in contrast, you know what I'm looking for? And the word means, look, means to take note of, behold, to regard. We'd say it today, you know how you can get God's attention? See, because you're here, listen, because you're here today does not mean he's looking at you. It doesn't mean that he's, you've got his attention. Just being here at church doesn't cut it. He says, but you want to know it does? It reminds me of, on TV, I think a couple weeks ago, they had the NFL Combine, where all these guys coming from college and other places are trying to make it in the NFL, and they go through all of these tests and all of these things that you have to do. They have all kinds of NFL scouts there, and they're looking because they want to see what you can do. So they have all of these things. You have to do the 40-yard dash. 
so much, you have to bench press, vertical jump, and you have to do all these kinds of things that you do. And as they watch you do all these things, they want to see what traits you have. And they want to see how good you are because there's only certain things that impress NFL scouts. See, God says, you want to know what my spiritual combine is? You want to know what really gets God's attention? Do you know if he's looking for people who he says, oh yeah, you know what, that's a real worshiper of me. You know, he says, here's what they are, and, and God gives it to us. There's three traits of it. So God is looking for a person who has a true heart of worship. That's what he's looking for. And he's going to tell you in no uncertain terms, he's going to describe for us three traits so that you know exactly what he's looking for. And I'm going to tell you, it's going to be completely opposite of what you think. Three traits, here they are one at a time. Number one, he's looking for a person who has a humble heart. The verse says this, this is the one to whom I will look. This is the person who gets my attention. You know what he does? This is a person who is humble. That's where he starts. Humble. The word literally in Hebrew means without property. Without property. What in the world does that mean? It means they have no standing and they have no status. They have very little resources. It's often translated poor and needy. Sometimes it's even translated emaciated from people who don't have any food to eat and they've totally lost weight because they have nothing. See, here's what God says. You build this great temple for me. It's, it, listen, here's what it means to worship me. I'm the one who is big and you're the one who is small. That's what true worshipers get that very few others do. You see, having a high view of God should always result in a lowly view of yourself. See, people today, they come to church, they want to come to church because they want you to make much of them. They want you to make much of them as they sit in the pew. They want you to make much of them and how you do. They want, you to they want the services and the worship and the kind of methods that we use. They want it to all be about them. Whether you did this for me, whether you remember me. And here's what God says. It's not about you, it's about me. See, that's what he's after. He says, here's the first trait of a true worshiper. They're humble. They have a very high view of God and a very lowly view of themselves. Just a few pages back in Isaiah 57, 15, here's what God says. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up. Now watch the high and low contrasts. Who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place. Right? I dwell in heaven. I dwell in the temple. I dwell in the holy of holies. This is how awesome I am. But listen, I don't primarily want that. Listen, listen. What does he want? Where does he want to dwell? But I also dwell with him who is of a contrite spirit and lowly spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly, to revive the heart of the contrite. See, God says, you know what I'm looking for? I'm looking for people when they come to church, recognize how high I am and how low they are. That's what God's looking for. Psalm 138, 6. Though the Lord is high, he has regard for the lowly. It's not a trait, is it? Humility, lowliness, not a trait that's prized in our culture, is it? There's virtually no humility in the political arena today. Virtually none. 
There's no humility in our business sector. There's virtually no humility among sports figures that we watch on television. There's virtually no humility in our entertainment world. It's about me and my arrogance and how proud I am. And just because I'm on TV, my opinion matters more than others. See, there's very little, if any, humility going on anywhere around us in our culture. So for God to say to us in this place this morning that the number one trait I'm looking for is used to be humble and lowly and not thinking of yourselves, but put me at the center is something that goes against the grain of all that we're around and know. The only other time that the word humility is used in Isaiah's prophecy is in chapter 55 and verse 8, 5, 5, 55, 58, 5, excuse me. A person who humbles themselves and it's always in regard to their sin. You know what God's looking for? You know what a true worshiper is like? Is someone who in the presence of the Most High knows how to get most low. It's someone who realizes they have nothing and are nothing apart from God. It's someone who does not try to get God's attention with the externals without the internals. See, it's someone who is not radically self-centered, demanding their rights and treated a certain way, and you've got to do this for me. No, it's the person who is radically God-centered and as a result, others-oriented. So here's what he says. You know the one to whom I look, God says? The one who gets my attention, one who really is a true worshiper and not just going through the motions. The first thing about that person is they have a humble heart, a humble heart. And that's the only way, and by in fact, these three are progressive. The only way you can do the second one is you first have the first one. That is, you have to have a humble heart to have a broken heart. See, Isaiah calls it being contrite. It means brokenness. It's used spiritually and physically. It's used to describe, listen to this. It's the same word used to describe uh, Jonathan's, King Saul's son, Jonathan's son, Mephibosheth, when it describes in two places in 2 Samuel that his legs were crippled. It's the word crippled. It means that you know that you're lame. It means this, that you know that you are on spiritual crutches and that you should be sitting in a spiritual wheelchair. It's a person who knows the depths and the degree and the magnitude of their sin. Psalm 34, 18, the Lord is near to those who are brokenhearted, crippled on the inside. Psalm 51, David, after his sin with Bathsheba and murder of Uriah, he writes in Psalm 51, the sacrifices of God are a broken heart, a broken and contrite heart. O Lord, you will not despise. See, he knew that God said, go to the temple and make sacrifices. But you know what David knew more than that? That those sacrifices represented who he was on the inside. Now, here's what David said. Lord, here's the kind of heart I offer you today. I, I'm sinful, I know it, but God, I offer you my broken heart. These are people who don't spend so much time pointing the finger as looking in the mirror. They're not people who quickly find it easy to judge or condemn others because they haven't seen what they're up to. See, that's not the kind of person it is. It's not the person who wants to look broken, but the person who wants to live broken. They take the sacrifices seriously. They don't go through the motions. And that's why, look at the text, verse 2. 
There's a contrast grammatically. See the word he who, verse 2? He who is humble, he who is contrast. Now, Watch, that is in contrast with the very next verse because there are four more he who statements. He who slaughters, he who sacrifices, he who presents, he who makes. You know what he's doing? He's telling you this. If you come before God and you come on Sunday mornings and you bring your sacrifices and you bring your money and you give it in the plate and you sing the songs and you attend the church and you sit in the pew and you do all the right things but you have the wrong heart, Here's what God thinks of that. Ready? Because it lacks humility and brokenness. He says, it's like you slaughter an ox. That's the right way to do the sacrifice. And God looks at it as if like you killed someone. You bring the right sacrifice, but God looks at your heart and says, you're a murderer. See, he says, he who sacrifices a lamb like one who breaks a, a dog's neck, that you're out for violence just for sport. And he, and he gives four of those. And he says, listen, see, you can do all the right things, but if your heart isn't broken, if you're not coming to offer the sacrifices, if you're not coming to church, and you're not broken over the fact of how deep and, and degrading at times your sin is, see, he says, you haven't got it right. So let me give you the modern versions. He who sings in the choir is like one who sings in an acid rock band. He who teaches a small group lesson is like one who speaks using terribly foul language. He who speaks, I should see who gives a testimony is like one who speaks blasphemy against God publicly. He who attends a worship service is like he who worships a false god. See, you say, oh, that's crazy. How could that be? You see, that's what God says. He looks at their lives. You're coming to church. You're doing all the right things on the outside. But see, on the inside, there's no brokenness. There's, there's no heart in it. Interesting. In Isaiah 29, 13, the prophet also quotes and says this. These people draw near to me with their mouths, and they honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Jesus quotes that verse in Matthew 15, 8, and 9, but adds this phrase, and he puts this, in vain do they offer to me. In, listen, you know what vain means? Empty. Sodom and Gomorrah, that's what God calls it. Isaiah chapter 1, he calls Israel, you rulers of Sodom and Gomorrah. Wow, that is so strong. He says, why do you trample my courts? Why do you bring in the bulls and the goats and the cats? Why do you sacrifice? Why do you do it? He goes, I'm sick of it. Don't bring it anymore. Don't come to my temple anymore. He says, because you're like Sodom and Gomorrah. That's such strong words. You know why? Because God detests. He detests when we come to church and make him look so big publicly and he is so little privately in our lives. See, there's a reason for that, though. And that's the last trait. See, he says you've got to have a humble heart. You have to have a broken heart. And lastly, you have to have a trembling heart. Because these two things cannot be separated. Ready? A high view of God and a high view of Scripture have to be held together. They have to be held together. See, if you have a high view of God, you will have a lowly view of yourself, and you will have a high view of Scripture. 
a high view of Scripture. In fact, it's bracketed. Look at verse 2 and then verse 5. He says, this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble, contrite in spirit, and what? Trembles at my word. He says it again in verse 5. It's a bracket. He says, hear the word of the Lord, you who tremble at his word. It means exactly what you think. It means that you're so anxiety-ridden or fear-ridden that you start to shake. It's someone who doesn't just observe what the Bible says, but obeys what the Bible says. It's not someone in a service who's just taking notes, but taking notice of how they can live it in their lives. What does it mean to tremble at God's word? Ezra, in two places, in chapter 9 and 10, they found the book of the law. It had been years, years, decades, since they brought out the Bible. They bring it out, and they start reading it, and they start reading it, and they're reading it and reading it and reading it, and the more they read it, the more they start to cry, and they start to cry, and the Bible says they begin to, they're ashamed, and they start blushing, it says. There's a great guilt comes over them. They start confessing out loud. They start so crying bitterly that it's out of control. We would say today, they wreck themselves. They wreck themselves. You know why? Because two times, 9, 4, and 10, 3 of Ezra, it says, and they began to tremble at his word. They heard what the Bible said, and then they looked at their lives, and they said, oh my, oh my. See, that's who God looks at. That's a true worshiper. You remember the old commercial? I watched it on the internet this week. There's two guys sitting on a plane, a smaller plane, they're right beside each other, the aisle between them, and the one guy's talking financial stuff. And he says, hey, you know what, I've been getting these ideals and blah, blah, blah. And he goes, that's what my financial advisor says. What is your financial advisor said? And the guy goes, well, my financial advisor is E.F. Hutton. And all of a sudden, the, and the whole thing, the people on the plane, they're all reading newspapers, drinking stuff, talking to each other. He says E.F. Hutton, and they all go, <laughs> And all they all turn and they all move closer to the guy and they're all like just waiting, saying nothing, waiting for him to tell us more. And they made a bunch of those commercials. Everybody would stop what they're doing. When E.F. Hutton gave advice on finances, you listened because it could change everything. Word to God that when Jesus talked, we'd listen like that. That when the preacher preaches, not because it's good or not good, but because God's talking. And when God's talking and Jesus is talking and the word is talk, listen, being t- spoken, see, we're all going, yeah, shh, quiet. Here's what God is saying. And we read stuff about your marriage and there ought to be some people who tremble today because you know that when you read the Bible and look at your marriage, it's not right. The way you're not disciplining your kids or what the priorities and how you use your finances and what matters most to you and what's on your calendar and the time. That you see, see, the Bible addresses those issues and he's talking and they weren't listening so much so. Look what the Bible says. I'll choose harsh treatment for them, verse four. I'll bring fears upon them. Here's why. Because when I called, when I spoke to you, you didn't answer, he says, When I spoke, 
they didn't listen. And it wasn't just that they weren't listening to God. And by the way, there is no neutral hearing of Scripture. You're either hearing and doing it, or you're hearing and rejecting it. There is nothing in between. He says, not only they weren't listening when I was telling them how to live their lives. He says, but they chose evil. The things that I did not delight in, the things I didn't want them to do, when they wouldn't listen to my word, they chose that instead. And you know what? All their fears are coming on them, and their life is falling apart, and they don't get it. You know why? Because they keep listening to my word on Sundays, but they don't do any of it. See, they weren't tremblers. They were little godders. So God looks out on our congregation today, and he looks at you, and he looks at me. What does he see? Does he see a religious person who goes through the motions and knows how to show up and when to stand up and sit down and open the Bible and turn the pages and to be at the services? Someone who does all the right things on the outside, but there's something really, really wrong on the inside. Or does he look at you and say, that's the one I look at. That's the one I see. They have a true heart of worship because they are marked by humility. They are marked by brokenness. And then when I talk, they listen. They tremble at my word. Are you a big godder or a little godder? Let's pray. With every head bowed and every eye closed and no one looking around. You'd be here this morning. And you say, Pastor Walker, if I'm honest, I'm a little godder. I have to say, David Wells wasn't too far off. I think television is more interesting God's judgments aren't inspiring me. In fact, I probably wasn't even planning on coming back tonight. It doesn't move me. I know who he is, and I know what he's done for me. But he rests so inconsequentially on my life that you'd almost think that he's not important, that he's weightless. He deserves way more than that. Way more than that. I know him, but he's not big in my life. Oh, he's big, but not in my life. Not the way he should be. With every head bowed and every eye closed, there would be someone this morning say, Pastor Walker, pray for me. He's a little godder, but he deserves to be a big godder in my life, and I want that to change for me. Here's my hand. Pray for me. Would you slip your hand up and put it down, and I'll put it back. I'll pray for you in a moment. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Balcony, main floor. Anyone else? He, he deserves to be a big godder, and he's not. I know that, I don't know what changes that would make mean in my life. It may be major, and they may be many, but whatever it takes to give him the worship he deserves. You might be here this morning, and you'd say, Pastor Walker, my problem goes a little deeper than that, because at the heart of who I am, I'm just religious. You know, in fact, I came this morning, I go and do the religious things. 
whether it's this church or some other church or some other religion or denomination. See, I go because I, I want to be good and I want to do right to see. Have you come to the realization that God's not impressed with the externals if there is no heart for him? There's no relationship with him. And you'd have to say, Pastor Walker, I don't know that I have a, a daily relationship with him. I don't know if I've ever put my faith and trust in Jesus Christ, that he died for me and rose again, that my sins could be forgiven. I don't know that. I don't have that assurance. And the reason he's so small is because he's only on the outside. But you'd say this morning, I need to put God on the inside. I need to have his son in my life that he might dwell in me by faith. Please pray for me. Would you just slip your hand up and I'll pray for you as I close here in a moment as well. Would there be anyone here this morning? Just raise your hand. Put it down and I'll pray for you. Father, Thank you for your word. May we respond in humility. May we respond in brokenness. May we respond at trembling at your word. It is the least that we can do to bring you honor and glory. We're not performing today. We're not trying to pay you back. We're trying to express, as we sang already this morning, that you are worthy. Help us to do that the more by your grace and for your glory, we pray for Christ's sake. Amen.